Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Amy Tan, a family physician living in British Columbia who has expertise with palliative care and also has a large social media following on Twitter. We talk about the importance of health equity in palliative care, her life-changing experience as a patient, and the power of empathy and humility. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you. We can't wait to start chatting. Amy, you're a family doctor who has a particular interest in palliative care. How did that come about? Um, so I've always been interested in palliative care. I actually, personal experiences is, is what brought me into medicine, um, to be honest. Um, but what got me interested in home and community palliative care and primary palliative care was seeing the need way back in 2005 when I started practice. And um, word on the street was that I was interested in palliative care amidst my family practice um, and I'd done all these electives and um, had a keen interest in it and started working in a hospice when I became a family doctor and was working in a family medicine academic clinic as well and on a weekly basis I got called um, by home care nurses in the palliative care team in Edmonton saying uh, so we hear that you're you're um, interested in palliative care. Would you be willing to take on this quote unquote orphan patient? Mm -hmm. And even the term orphan patient really mm -hmm. saddens me. And mm -hmm. so I, you know, there was times in my career, early in my career, where I was driving all around the city of Edmonton, uh, going from home to home, and then following them into hospice. And then there was a time where I was driving all around the <laughs> to several homes and three hospices at, depending on where they landed and doing family medicine. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it's really the need. And, and as I kept seeing this and it, to me, it was tragic that um, we had family physicians who had, you know, 20, 10, 20, 30 years of experience with this patient mm -hmm. uh, relationships with patients and families mm -hmm. and at their last chapter of their life. Um, they kind of receded into the background and I to me that seemed really sad for both the patient family but also for the physician mm -hmm. um and you know and that's what I kind of identified was um you know to to kind of leave the stage at such a poignant time in a family patient and family story seemed really sad mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah so does that describe your practice now, Amy? You're doing family medicine and palliative care? Yeah, so um, I've been in, in flux for the last year and a half. I moved from Alberta to BC. Um, I would say that I do more palliative care now than in Alberta. Um, I do family medicine locums. I also take on long-term care patients um, and do family practice, family medicine there. Um, and part of it is just the, I'm sure you've heard, but the political milieu with regards to lack of support in family practice and just feeling really um, unsure as to what the future of family medicine in BC is gonna look like, because it's so different mm -hmm. from even the patient medical home in Alberta. And so not wanting to 
commit to practice and then something mm. happens. So I'm just trying to figure things out right now. But at the same time, given the shortage of family doctors and given how awful of a situation, um, if I can help by letting my colleagues get a break and take mm -hmm. good care of their patients, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm still helping the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I'm very aware that your um, mission right now is around equity, diversity, and inclusivity uh, with fierceness. Uh, <laughs> with, with a nice fierceness, not a fierce fierceness, but uh, seems you're on fire about that, uh, as you should be. Um, Sian, is it okay if I ask some questions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us, tell, tell the people, the listeners of this podcast, what you need them to know uh, about your passions. Oh, boy, that is a big question. Um, what I need people who are interested in a podcast about palliative care in Canada to know, I think in a nutshell, that's, that's your audience, yeah. um, be it patient, caregiver, mm -hmm. allied health professional, uh, clinician, etc. I think <clears throat> the most important thing that I would like to impart is that I think that palliative care clinicians researchers, people who are involved in palliative care in Canada may seem to have a double exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. As Canadians, we're kind and accommodating. That's kind of our world um, descriptor. Mm -hmm. As palliative care people, similarly, we have the same kind of description. Mm -hmm. And when, so when I say that palliative care in Canada has a lot of work to do with regards to equity, mm -hmm. I'm not in any way trying to knock down the vision that palliative care in Canada has of compassionate, kind, helpful people mm -hmm. within a kind, helpful system and society. Mm -hmm. It's to say that we are all steeped in a society and a system that has been built on inequity. Mm -hmm. And until we actually acknowledge that and, and say, you know, by growing up, by uh, training in this system and this society, we are all complicit mm -hmm. in individual ways and also in systemic ways um, of perpetuating inequity. And so this is not a personal attack on any one person mm -hmm. in the system. It's about saying collectively, we all have to do our own inner work to say, how is it that I, as an individual in Canadian society, um, maybe perpetuating inequity consciously or subconsciously, mm -hmm. but then how is the practice of palliative care mm -hmm. within medicine also perpetuating it? Because until we acknowledge it, we can't actually dismantle it. Amy, can you give us an example of what you mean by inequity in palliative care? <laughs> so when you think of a hospice setting in Canada, um, so be it a hospice house or a hospice ward within a long-term care facility, who is there? Who actually has access? Who knows about it? Who feels comfortable to enter their last chapter of their life in this hospice. And I'm going to be so far as and say white, middle class, educated, secure housing, secure food, 
cancer diagnoses with the cancer diagnosis cancer diagnosis i would say that's shifting um i i actually see quite a bit of chronic disease now um but then also speaks english or i guess in quebec speaks french Mm -hmm. that's that's who it's catered to but if you look at the hospice or palliative care discipline it started out of the uk and i mean i have great respect for the hospice palliative care um, origins i did my master's in palliative care out of the uk so of course Mm -hmm. i know in terms of um the wisdom and the the breadth of knowledge and generation um of knowledge that's been invaluable to easing suffering but again it's it was built in a colonial euro ethnocentric lens mm-hmm. and that has perpetuated worldwide right if you look at all the levels in which this happens i mean i can i can talk about really macro levels if you talk about where in the world is there even access to good hospice palliative care mm-hmm. it's the western world mm-hmm. right it is not the countries in africa um and other, even Latin America, like, again, if you're not a, essentially based in the big economies of the world, you don't have access mm-hmm. to palliative care. Mm-hmm. I would say you don't have access to primary care too, which is part of it, but mm-hmm. all of that, right? Mm-hmm. So you can look at it from a macro level, and then you look at it from a cultural level for countries that have multiculturalism as part of their society. It's really again, even just language, the assumption that in your last chapter of your life, if you haven't spoken English for the last 80 years, and all of a sudden in order for you to get good palliative care or hospice care, you need to be able to speak English to your caregivers Mm -hmm. or else you're gonna be misinterpreted, misunderstood, et cetera. That is a very, very basic um, Mm -hmm. example of the inequity. Amy, so can I ask you, you are clearly trying to shift the dial um, or the needle with all the incredible work you're doing um, on social media, uh, presentations, um, speaking engagements. I'm wondering how do you as an individual who provides palliative care and goes into hospices, cares for people in hospices, how do you walk the walk as an individual? So as an individual, um, I'm that person on the team. Um, it sometimes makes my, my, my own life miserable because if team members are not willing to hear it, um, it, it can get difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I advocate for the patient. So be it a language barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to reframe with team members when I hear, oh, that was so frustrating. If only this person could understand me or I could understand this person, I could get a better control of his or her symptoms. And to be like, you're frustrated because this person can't speak English. Like, wh- where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. Why are we not treating this person the same? Mm-hmm. Um, there are, when you see cultural differences, um, different ways of grieving, different ways of family gathering, family-centered decision-making versus personal autonomy is a huge one. Yeah. Um, trying to help the teams I work with in various cities and provinces over my career go, wait a second, I know as Western-trained clinicians in healthcare, we prize personal autonomy 
above all else. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a very good example of how we as individuals in Canada, regardless of, you know, I'm, I'm Chinese and I come from a culture that's very family centered, um, collective decision making, especially with regards to palliative care is huge. But I also bought into the personal autonomy above all else because that's what I was trained in. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you have uh, Western ethics, medical ethics framework that again prizes personal autonomy above all else. And then you have a family that very much embraces collective family-centered um, decision making, where the decisions not only are deferred to the family. But it may be that the patient actually says, I relinquish my autonomy because I want my spouse, my loved ones who are going to be left after I'm gone to be okay mm -hmm. with the decision to have be able to live with it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so if it means that I'm going to massage my choice because mm -hmm. I'm taking into consideration the collective, mm -hmm. that's my that's my um, enactment of my personal autonomy. Yeah. However, the Western way of looking at that is <gasps> that person's being coerced. Mm -hmm. You know, that person is is putting their family over themselves, and maybe they're be, you know maybe we need to find a way to really find out what they're really thinking when they're alone. Yeah. Right, and and I've I've been guilty of this over my career, and it's been with time and hopefully wisdom and experience where mm -hmm. I've been able to take a step back and go, huh, maybe there's a different way to look at this. Maybe mm -hmm. there's a different way to approach this. Mm -hmm. And so really it's like advocating right at the coal face, like right with every patient encounter that doesn't fit the box. And there's a lot of people who don't fit the box. And so, you know, there are so many layers to the inequities and the way we approach things uh, that you're talking about. And I think some of them are like just basic training in, you know, caring for people outside of the traditional care settings. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's um, the power differential in the hospital. When you put your white coat on and you swing your stethoscope around your neck and you're speaking Latin and Greek in English words or this weird language, um, that doesn't fly in, in the community. That just does not fly. Uh, yeah. You have to bring yourself down off of a pedestal and be vulnerable and open to broad uniqueness of every oh, encounter absolutely and just you know to be able to be trusted enough to be brought in yeah to somebody's space I mean I know how much I fiercely protect my own house yeah. and my home and you know it's my it's my sanctuary yeah. Yeah. <laughs> only people who are invited get to come in you know what I mean and yeah. so especially when they're at such a vulnerable time in their family and patient's life to be able to see you know things like family pictures how you know what's in the fridge I've, I found like advanced care plans in the freezer because they were told to put in the freezer but it was supposed to be on the freezer, not in the oh. freezer. So like, you know, having to extract a frozen advanced care plan and say, no, it's actually supposed to be outside. So you must can find it if we need to, you know, like things like that. Um, the mountain of medication 
and that becomes like the dining room centerpiece rather than the dining table the hospital bed in a favorite room all of those things are so priceless and so yeah. I think beautiful mm-hmm. um but and I think I think just this the the act of entering somebody else's domain mm-hmm. taking off your shoes being respectful going where can I sit it's such a different shift from mm-hmm. in the hospital where you know especially as physicians we're kind of mm-hmm. socialized to rule the place I, I can't stand that but yeah, yeah. and everything right. you do in someone's home is only as good as they're accepting of it and and yeah. co- co-create it or um you know everything is negotiated. You don't sneak up and write orders in a, in a chart. <laughs> you know, you, you have to really understand and um, dance with the patient and family um, to their tune or else you leave. And it, it, it doesn't matter that you were there if you haven't yeah. truly um, immersed yourself into the way they live their life, right? Yeah. Right. And I think that speaks to, again, like who has access, especially to palliative care, who has access to palliative care facilities? It's, again, a a narrow scope of the population centered around which palliative care has all their studies on, like Mm -hmm. all their studies are on, you know, all the all the major seminal palliative care studies are on white people. Mm -hmm. Again, middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, if in the U.S. have healthcare insurance, which again mm-hmm. adds to another layer of inequity, there's there's very few studies about you know like outside the facility walls, which again by definition then you're you are excluding a whole host of people who have very different needs and um, who aren't taught about who um, the problem solving the unique problem solving that is required. Um, Now that I do, um, I support the community palliative care team as a consultant around the island here, like even just thinking about taking a water taxi or a ferry to a very far off remote island is like Mm -hmm. very out of the box thinking that happens, right? Hmm, how do we do this? And how do we do this in a way that it's going to be comfortable for the person to transfer? And mm-hmm. you know, things that you we didn't learn in medical school. It's that's part of the real world thinking that not everybody's going to live the way I think a lot of people in medicine live. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, what you're saying is the ultimate um, you know, meeting the person where they're at and truly yes. customizing care to, around the patient and, and family, really. And patient-centered mm-hmm. care. And that's sort of the, really the underpinning of the waiting room revolution. Um, so I, I feel like, because I know we've worked together in research, um, that you really are a good role model of how you can incorporate some of the keys that we talk about in, from a clinician point of view. So if it's okay, I, I would, Elena, just, you know, run some by you because we've struggled trying to get um, clinicians to, if we sort of train patients and families to use some of these phrases and practice these keys, they might meet resistance from clinicians. So, um, you know, one of them is hope for the best, plan for the rest. How do you sort of do that dance? Yeah, okay. So uh, that's a dance that I take the responsibility of um, initiating and, and definitely participating in very seriously. I think that as a palliative care physician and even as a family physician, if we aren't talking about um, the 
reality-based context, then I feel that um, I always say to my patients, this is information about your life that I may have that mm -hmm. I have to share with you because you and your family have to make the best decision for you. I'm not going to hold any information from you or hide from any information because it's your life and and you need to make the best decisions. And so I'm definitely the person, a person who subscribes to, if a patient wants more information, I am gladly and with relief actually going to go there with them because I, I mean, I personally think knowledge is power, but I also know some people can't, um, can't process that much information. So really take the lead from the patient, but in no way we um, do I ever want to be the the roadblock mm -hmm. for patients and families who want that information? Unfortunately, we still live in a um, society and a medical culture where um, curing is still valued more than caring. And I, another thing I will say is that you might not. Sorry, you will not cure all your patients. That's the reality that you can darn well care for all of your patients. Mm -hmm. um, and that means having to be vulnerable with patients and say, I'm sorry that medicine, as much as we've made advances, can't cure your stage four pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. But we can talk about the journey and what to expect and what your goals are and how to optimize things so that we can try to achieve your goals. There will be a lot of people that, first of all, won't be able to listen to our podcast, to read a book that we publish or to access our website. Um, there'll be people that even if we suggest, suggest this to, that they are not in a position of feeling uh, invited uh, to find a way to find their voice or to feel empowered or activated or whatever. Like, so I am worried that our movement is going to miss a whole bunch of people who are more vulnerable. Um, so I don't know how to address that with our movement actually, because it is about an empowered patient, but how there's some people that it's very difficult. It's, it's very egocentric to say, oh, we're going to empower patients. You know, some people can't be empowered or they're empowered. I don't know. Fix my language, Amy, and tell me, help me sort this out. So I feel I, like our movement is, is for people who can find their voice, but there are people that right. are not going to, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely. And I think it speaks to, again, who, who do we in medicine as a default cater to and not and again subconsciously systemically not not because we want to exclude people so then the fact that you're asking this question and taking a step back and going okay who are we who are we perhaps not including i think that's that's a beautiful approach and and so um i will always say language is is of low-hanging fruits in canada we just had that really interesting study that showed um punjabi mandarin and punjabi are the two most um, spoken languages at home other than mm -hmm. English mm -hmm. and French and so you know the shifting de demographic because of immigration so you know if we want to reach people mm -hmm. who you know my my grandparents are now gone but mm -hmm. even to the end of their life 
technology aside, they would not have understood this conversation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so they, you know, language is a very like in the major languages, mm -hmm. in, indigenous languages would be another place, you know, mm -hmm. that yeah. to include. Um, so, I mean, that sounds really basic, but it's yeah. I think a very powerful place and even if if you can't and it's I guess difficult with podcasts but if you yeah. could have even a summary in yeah in those key languages that would be helpful do you know what that that's really good advice I am also thinking and again it can I just speak freely like I'm mm -hmm. I'm thinking of people who feel vulnerable in the healthcare system um beyond just language but the LGBTQT community or um you know there's so many groups that feel that they just cannot uh and so what do you what do you do yeah. when what, the principle here is that the patient and family leech out what they need from the system but it means you have to yeah so it's it's really about engaging with the community so it's en engaging with people who have experienced racist harm and who therefore don't trust the healthcare system mm -hmm. beyond language um, mm -hmm. um it's it's talking to the LGBTQ plus um, communities, knowing that they're not a monolith. You know, I know that transgender health is, yeah. is especially vulnerable in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, finding out what is it, you know, have there been experiences mm -hmm. even accessing palliative care, let alone mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how that could be better. Mm -hmm. um, people who are vulnerably housed, people who work, live in shelter, people who mm -hmm. have no um, trust in any institution for good reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how do we make, how do we make hospices not feel like jails? Yeah. When, mm -hmm. when, you know, there's all this discussion right now, even with long-term care and embedding palliative care, long-term care, but even like long-term care has been described as jail. Yeah. So how how do we actually allow for freedom of in and out and again meeting a patient where they're at? Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of this is a legal framework where institutions are so fearful of taking on risk, but I think mm -hmm. we need to take on risk, mm -hmm. even if they sign off on something to say, hey, you can wander in and out. Um, we just want to be able to care for you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I had, we had a patient that um, had, you know, had a motor, motorized wheelchair and on paper, very risky for this person to leave. Mm -hmm. Previously vulnerably housed, went from shelter to shelter. And if that's a difference between not getting care, not getting pain control, not getting wound care, mm -hmm. not getting catheter care, and horrible quality of life on this on you know from shelter to shelter not knowing where he was going to sleep I think that's a risk that the institution needs to mm -hmm. really take on and say look this this is patients under care mm -hmm. this is not about our rules and regulations and what our lawyers are comfortable with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean I I would just say Sammy that I think part of the impetus of our movement was to divorce the elements of what is a good patient-centered care from the words hospice palliative care so that 
mm-hmm. we could at least move in the right direction of giving access to more and more people. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you're absolutely right that, um, you know, sort of the ways that we've been able to channel might miss some people, but our whole movement is the idea that patients, families, the public should be using this language. And then they're going to come as an army to the healthcare system who also needs to be ready. So it's really not any one person's responsibility to bring Mm -hmm. it forward. It should be everyone's responsibility, whether it's the person you bring to an appointment, which we absolutely think is a good idea, whether it's, you know, all the interprofessional people who are part of the healthcare team who could say, hey, you know, do you want to walk two roads? You know, can we help you zoom out? These are approachable phrases and concepts that aren't tied to this idea of a hospice or palliative care specialist. That Mm -hmm. is the heart of the movement. And I think that is the whole, that is a big part of of equity Mm -hmm. um, is allowing patient-centered care to permeate through. It's actually not about palliative care. It's about Mm patient-centered care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's about um, creating an approach of openness and trust building and mm-hmm. checking your implicit biases and being open to feedback and you know saying you know similar to to what you said Sammy like mm-hmm. please help me with my language mm-hmm. being humble being vulnerable and going you know did, did that land wrong please mm-hmm. let me know if something I said land, landed wrong I want to learn from you mm-hmm. you know just an example of like you know like I found out that my friend had a religious holiday this week that I didn't know about. I said, you know, do you mind telling me and sharing about about it? And also, what is the appropriate greeting? And thank you for teaching me about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, there's no way we can know everything about everything, but we can be open to learning about yeah. it and, and saying, you know what, I didn't know that. I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Please, please help me learn for the next time. So was there, so Sienna and I talk about, um, the moment, like when we shifted and we thought, okay, this has to be public facing, you know, we can, we can try to educate and, you know, influence the healthcare system from within until the cows come home. But this it's an, there's an urgent, we felt an urgent crisis to Mm -hmm. be public facing on this one. Um, I'm just curious if in your career, uh, when did you become conscious of all that you talk about now? Was it a moment? Was it um, a phasing over time? Was I'm, I'm curious. Or have you always been a warrior? <laughs> so, um, no, it's been definitely a personal journey. I have had to learn the own my own lessons I have from being a daughter of immigrants who taught me as their survival mechanism to keep your head down stay quiet mm-hmm. be grateful for what you have Shh, don't don't ruffle feathers um, so I had to learn un- unlearn those and and build up courage to do something that I'm more comfortable now with um, but I had such deeply ingrained lessons and I could still hear my parents' voice <laughs> and mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so no, definitely it's been a journey. I often say to learners now with regards to talking about anti-oppressive, anti-racist approaches to teams and healthcare and patient care, that 20 years ago it was happening. I It was happening to me. I, there was just no place, space, language to talk about it. So part of it has been an evolution that society has 
been on that and then also embedding it in medical edu medical education um, starting in 2012 so 10 years ago mm -hmm. um, bringing in modules about colonialism and the residential schools things that I growing up in BC didn't learn about and had to learn about as an adult as a practicing physician mm -hmm. um, that my younger sister social worker in palliative care now but a social worker had learned about in her um, grad school work, but we hadn't learned medicine. Like that's appalling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, learning as I learned more, read more, went down rabbit holes, but then also went through my personal journey. It really um, was eye-opening, but it's almost like you can't unsee things that you used to not be able to see. And so then True. I just saw it everywhere. And 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 I would point things out and people were like, huh. And so the more I pointed out, the more people were like, mm. and I was like, yeah, similar to what you're saying about public faces. Like I had to, not that it was solely on me, but I was like, if we don't point these things out, then other people might not have that opportunity to maybe look at things differently. I'm, there's something about people being silenced when they have uh, a diagnosis in the sense that when you even said, like when you were growing up, you had to be like a good patient, you had to behave, you had to, you, you couldn't ask questions. You really just had to do what the doctor said. There is a form of silencing in there that the healthcare system has become expert at. Mm -hmm. And that's oh, yeah. horrible. I think that's horrible. Mm -hmm. When I think of it that way, that it's um, silencing, it's so sickening. Yeah, and, and that's the reality of especially many Black and Indigenous patients where they, you know, they share tips about being well-dressed, be well-groomed so they can't misconstrue you and they won't not take your story seriously yeah. or not take your pain seriously and not peg you as a drug seeker. But I'm even thinking about it for anyone with a diagnosis. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, Yeah. And that speaks, I think, to the power of the institution. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. let's be honest, the medical culture is a hierarchical, it's very military-like, you know? Mm -hmm. It's hierarchical right down to the patients. Mm -hmm. So um, when you say like once, once you're, once you're there, you just can't unsee it. That's been my experience as well in palliative care. I feel like for such a long time in my career, I felt like, yes, I am an angel. Yes, I'm a palliative care doctor. Look at my wings. Um, oh yes, and I'm just such a good person. And you know, it, there was a feel good portion to my career. And then suddenly I felt ugly. I felt like I was a band-aid, like I was helping the healthcare system tie a bow around something yeah like it's almost like we were complicit in the system similar to yeah. complicit in systems of inequity saying but okay, i didn't yeah. know yeah and i call palliative care for a comprehensive goals of care conversation and um, then you feel we good all about should it. be doing that <laughs> i know but the problem is is so many of us feel so good about it like right like we we get we're swooping on in. it it is our cocaine our heroin uh, of our work like there's nothing better than to help like it's addictive you know and but we're we're we should sh shame on us <laughs> it's it's we could have such better reach and deeper reach and broader reach if if 
we weren't positioned that way. But anyway, I, I'm just this idea of once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, that really resonates. And I just wonder, like, you know, I, I, you're, you're making me think of some very recent conversations um, with patients. Um, it's been a very intense time the last few months with delayed diagnoses and, and young people dying um, on my palliative care units. And having conversations I haven't had before, before the pandemic, before the healthcare system collapse, where a young person with aggressive cancer would two days later after diagnosis be in the cancer clinic getting the kitchen sink thrown at them because they're otherwise robust. Mm. And now they they are dying before they even get to the cancer center. Um, and I, I just, I, I remember coaching patients saying, you know, when you get to the cancer center, these are the questions you should be asking, like, what are my, what are the trade-offs? If, if you throw the kitchen sink at me, mm. what will that actually accomplish? Will it give me two more days? Will it give me a year? What is your, what is your, what are your goals? You haven't thought about your mortality because you're born in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's just cognitively dissonant for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and they're like, oh my goodness, thank you. Like we wouldn't have thought to think about these questions. And, and it's, it's that type of, I wish people knew that they could ask these questions. They could challenge, um, but can you both you have to cope? We have to coach them so that they get what they need from our colleagues. Like, it's so weird. Like, it's I, like, it's like we have to give them a playbook. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. And I mean, I have physician patients. Yeah. Who over tw almost 20 years now, all the physician patients I've had, none of them knew about palliative care. None of them understood the system navigation. Um, and yeah. then you think, okay, what's the flip side? Like, like it's, it's sad that they don't know what their options are. And it's, but, and it's not that, I'm not saying that every physician, you know, you're allowed to be patient. I, I'm a patient, I've been a patient. It, you know, you do want to let go, but it's more to say, we don't know enough about this in society and in medicine to help each other, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like we should be collectively teaching each other, mm -hmm. having that village help each other mm -hmm. rather than it be like cloistered. Like whenever I, I did a home visit, I would be like, nobody else knows the suffering that's happening in this house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, Unless, unless they really made let their garden go mm -hmm. really awry, nobody will know mm -hmm. what is happening behind that closed door. And I feel like there's been a there's been a shift. Um, like when I grew up, we kept doors open. I mean, again, different time and place, safety, yeah. etc. I get that, but we knew our neighbors, and and I know now people move around. Like who am I to say? I've moved a bunch of times, mm -hmm. but but there is that community but the other thing is I'm seeing in my practice is that you know the number of people who are outliving their family and friends mm -hmm. and all they have are their neighbors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and they don't want to they don't want to impose mm -hmm. and like you know compassionate communities whatever you want to call it I think there again it takes a village mm -hmm. 
to enter the world and to leave the world. And we've mm-hmm. done a very poor job with the mm-hmm. leaving of the world, which, I mean, it truly is a circle of life. And, mm-hmm. you know, one is shunned and one is embraced. Well, also, and how do we get that? Um, autonomy, independence, physicalness, all of that is valued in our society, right? And so it, it's... Um, there's no value that people see in um, declining, I know. Like, you know, or the, the gifts that you can give in the face of physical decline or, you know, losing, there's control that can be had even when you decline, like these, I don't know, there are all these concepts that I think need rethinking. Yeah. And I mean, that, that gives me shivers because I don't know if you know this part of my history, I am quite open about it, but I, um, broke my back in a rollover car accident when I was a resident. And that actually started my whole career in events care planning, to be honest. I think CN knows about this. Yeah. So for a good six months, I was completely dependent on my husband for ADLs. I could not, I could not move in bed without being log rolled safely because I had unstable fractures. So when you talk about physical disability and the value of a person that brings tears to my eyes because I was 24 and I couldn't do anything for myself but my brain was still there mm-hmm. um and if like society likely wrote me off I made people uncomfortable friends stayed away because I, I had a war clamshell and mm-hmm. um and it's taken many years to, you know, and I still, I still hide, you know, my gait and mm-hmm. my pain, etc. I, I do it less now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's so internalized that being mm-hmm. abled equals a person being valued. And, and um, yeah. if somebody wrote me off at 24, I mean, I, I've had, I have a lot to contribute. Like, don't mm-hmm. write me off just because I couldn't walk and I couldn't do the basic things that a person needs to do physiologically that everybody takes for granted I couldn't do for months on my own like I don't disclose to many of my patients but um, when I say I know what it feels like to feel completely helpless and to feel completely physically dependent on other people and how frustrating that is Mm -hmm. and to have to mourn that loss I I get it um yeah for sure. Um, Thanks for sharing that. No doubt that experience and trauma from that car accident has influenced how you practice. If it's okay, can we change gears a bit? I know you're very active on social media, especially Twitter. You have a large following. What got you started with, with that, with Twitter, social media? <laughs> so there, I feel like, especially with COVID, with all the misinformation, there, there, there's a responsibility that what I put out there, especially with COVID, is what I stand behind. Um, but there are many times where I forget, and I use it. I said, I said to a friend and colleague this morning on another Zoom call, like I use it. Maybe it is a coping mechanism, but I use it to release some pressure when I'm really when I'm observing things that I can't unsee. That's really frustrating because again it's like pointing it out and saying you know I'm going to point it out if if I can't point it out to the direct person that I'm witnessing this because it's just not the right time and place Mm -hmm. I can put it out in the world so other people can learn from it (laughs) (laughs) I I feel you there I I also uh, 
I became a tweeter too. And it's the same. Like for me, it becomes my way of standing on a mountain and screaming. Mm -hmm. Can't keep it in anymore. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, it still amazes me when people be like, oh, I saw this and this that you tweeted. I'm like, really? People actually actually look at it? Like, like, (laughs) yeah. You know, you are clearly an advocate for vulnerable populations and everything patient-centered care at the bedside, especially on your social media. So thank you so much. It takes a lot of guts to be out there and saying what you're saying. It's been amazing to learn about your stories as a patient, but also hearing what fuels you as a physician in the community. You know, there's all these beautiful reasons why most most people go into medicine right Mm -hmm. like the wanting to understand better to accompany to care you know however like most people really want to be in healthcare because they want to help other people it's so interesting to me because when people just happen upon palliative care in their training uh, and they come and do a rotation after being part of whatever other medicine they've been part of their training, they often reflect back on, you know, saying things like, you know, I I really love this rotation because it reminds me of why I wanted to be a doctor. And that's told to me over and over and over again. And, you know, I think again, at first your feeling is like, Oh, that's great. And then you think about it more and you think about, that is so sad that first of all, you just happened upon palliative care and that you happen to see, you know, person-centered care, um, truth and reality-based care uh, for the first time (laughs) that, you know, and that you're at the 11th hour of your training Mm -hmm. and it sounds like it was washed out of you uh, until you recognized it again. You're recognizing why you went into medicine again. Yeah. Isn't and that so sad? I think it's such a tragedy that, you know, having been in medical education for 20 years, that we we somehow the system beats it out of of people. And um we need to something needs to change because yeah. again, palliative care may be let's say the epitome or the exemplar for patient-centered care, but we need patient center care everywhere, like everywhere, yeah. right? Like I was an orthopedic yeah. sur- surgery patient. Yeah. And I will never forget the orthopedic surgeon, 6 a.m. in the morning, because that's when they went. Mm-hmm. And I started crying and I said, I don't know how I'm going to manage at home. I don't know how I'm going to get my life back. And I was bawling. Mm-hmm. And he sat down mm-hmm. and he said, Amy, we will not let you go home before you're ready. Mm-hmm. We will make sure. I know things seem really, really dire right now, but it will get better. Yeah. Human. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. If he can do it, anybody can do it. I agree. And, and honestly, like, I, I mean, I think about that moment and that's what I needed in that moment. I was so desolate. Like I was so like, oh my gosh, like 
24, like, it, like, am I going to be able to work? Like, not even, let, I'm going to be able to work. I can't even go to the bathroom, let alone <laughs> think about, you know, yeah. what the rest of my life's going to look like. But that shouldn't be special. <laughs> it shouldn't but, be special, right, but it right. is. I know. But, but it also, but as an example, though, of how, again, similar to what I said, you know, healthcare can make or break it for a patient. And I think our colleagues need to understand that, yeah. that it might be the umpteenth patient for you mm-hmm. with four burst vertebral fractures, but it's the one and only for that patient. Mm-hmm. And it will follow them the rest of their life however long that is yeah and their family members and the people who walk alongside with them that's the ripple effect but there is um it's never going to you know the answer is never going to be that people have to do palliative care rotations or they have to you know the answer will only be like you said when every doctor and every nurse has learned how to maintain and cultivate and ferment those human qualities of the reasons why they brought came into medicine. Um, They need to just, they just need to remember that we're all humans at the end of the day. And, you know, and that um, human, the human part of medicine must be exploited (laughs) so that it's not chipped away at over you know our training but anyway I know we all feel that way but it is it isn't about you know palliative care rotations it's got to be infused and role modeled all over the place Uh even in orthopedics (laughs) sorry to all the orthopods that right (laughs) but but what I'm saying it is possible I experienced it yeah Yeah. and and for me it was a seminal moment for me yeah. Well, it, I think in medicine, it's beat out of you to 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 the emotion, right? Like um, you can't have emotion, and also the time. Like it take, it feels like it takes time to just be able to listen to stories and react and be vulnerable. But I know it's it's to sit down at six o'clock in the rounds. Yeah, when you have got yeah, forty. Yeah. So I mean, the, yeah. the the system again doesn't foster it. So again, it's a yeah, systemic exactly. issue. But I also think there, I guess, our generation. Can I say, like, our generation of people in medicine were kind of taught about this objective distance that mm-hmm. it was to help us with objectivity mm-hmm. and the scientific method mm-hmm. and also burnout. And I would say very strongly Opposite. that the lack of empathy actually causes burnout. If you don't invest in your patients and treat them like fellow human beings, mm-hmm. that's when you're going to burn out. Yeah. For me, it's the people go, oh, Amy, like how it must be so hard. You feel so deeply for your patients. Mm-hmm. That actually is what keeps me going. Yeah, yeah. Because you never feel helpless as a physician because you can't cure something. You help every day and every moment. We never, us palliative care doctors, ever feel helpless because we always know there's something we can do. And even if it's just being with someone in their suffering. As a human being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're almost at time. Go ahead. I was just, just... going to ask Amy if she would be my palliative care doctor when, <laughs> when my time comes. <laughs> but that means that you can't be mine then. Thank you. Yeah. Amy, thank um... you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you. This was great. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa. Ketsa.